Welcome to the Hacking Consciousness podcast, exploring consciousness through science, technology, meditation, and psychedelics. I'm your host, Adrian Baker. Thank you for listening. We have a very interesting conversation for you today about the power of myth, metaphor, and language, and the role of all of these in our attempts to understand consciousness. On this show, I will do my best to facilitate these conversations in a way that can appeal to a larger audience, one that might be more skeptical or even hostile to organized religion. And I do this because I truly believe there is much benefit to gain from these practices and from these ways of looking at the world, even for those who have no interest in subscribing to any sort of supernatural beliefs. There is a lot of power and mythology, metaphor, and language. And today I've got a uniquely well-educated guest on the show who can school us in these matters. And of course, if you are very much into Indian religion and philosophy or simply want to learn about a worldview different than your own, then welcome regardless of whether you are theistic or atheistic. Something that Susanna points out in our conversation is not so much a binary choice as a spectrum of individual beliefs and choices, which is a viewpoint that I am inclined to agree with. One request before we get started, I would kindly ask that if you enjoy this podcast to please leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher or on the Google Music Store. It really helps to get the word out about the podcast. So thank you very much. If you want to follow us on social media, you can do so at uh, first, the WordPress page is hackingconsciousness.org. You can follow through WordPress. There's also a Hacking Consciousness Facebook page. And on Twitter and Instagram, the handle is hacking without the G. So H-A-C-K-I-N-C-O-N-S-C-I-O-U-S. And if you're wondering why it's shorter, it's because Twitter and Instagram limit the length of your user ID. So introducing today's guest, my guest today is Susanna Harwood Rubin. Susanna is a yoga teacher, writer, and artist whose work is rooted in South Indian philosophy. She is a storyteller who is passionate about Hindu myth and the philosophy of Rajanaka Tantra, which she has studied for over 15 years in the U.S. and in South India with Dr. Douglas Brooks, one of the great living scholars of Hindu Tantra. She is the creator of Devi Soul Yoga, combining yoga asana with Hindu myth, mantra, mudra, and meditation. Susanna is based in New York City and also offers workshops and retreats internationally. And now I give you my conversation with Susanna Harwood Rubin. Hey, Susanna. Hi, Adrian. How's it going? It's going well. Excellent. How are you doing this morning? I guess it is in New York. Yes, more, sir, yeah, it's slowly turning into later morning. Yes, <laughs> doing well. Excellent. It's good. And still a little warm here in between. Glad to hear it. Yeah, this is a nice time of year in New York. Well, let's, um, you know, I, I gave everyone your introduction before we started at the beginning of the show, but I'd still love to start off just, you know, with you telling 
the audience a bit about your background and maybe you can also mention how we know each other as well. Okay, well, I'll say first of all that we know each other through studying with Dr. Douglas Brooks, who is an expert on Eastern religion and particularly the Hindu um, traditions of South India. And we, in terms of my background, I've been studying with Douglas for actually over 15 years now, which is crazy, just a little bit over 15 years. And that was, I met him when I began my yoga teacher training. 15 years ago when he showed up that first weekend, which was fairly life-changing for me because I never had any intention of being a yoga teacher. Mm -hmm. um, and my background is in the art world, and if it weren't for Douglas, probably I wouldn't have ended up becoming a yoga teacher. So it, 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 it touched upon things that I felt really passionate about, like jnana yoga, the, the yoga of knowledge and um, the more cerebral parts, in a way, of the, of the yoga world. Interesting. And what were you doing in the art world, again? Um, I was, a couple of things. I was an artist, and that had always been my life plan. <laughs> the yoga thing threw me for a loop. <laughs> uh, my life plan was always, as an artist, living in New York. And I was also working from a very young age, straight out of college almost, at the Museum of Modern Art in the Education Department as a lecturer and a writer, doing all kinds of things that the Education Department necessitated. But those were the two primary things that I was became involved with there. Excellent. I kind of wanted to highlight that for the audience because what we're really going to be diving into today, um, you know, mythology and metaphor and sort of the relevance of that for an audience that is interested in meditation yet might not necessarily um, be interested in uh, organized religion traditionally. Um, that's why I wanted to have you on because I think you're in a unique position to kind of speak about this, both through your background in the art world and also studying with Douglas. And before we kind of dive into the questions, I think one thing that might be helpful as well for the audience, can you explain kind of the basic idea of just what Rajanika yoga is in that viewpoint for our listeners because I think that is uh, perhaps an interesting take that people don't often think about when they think about Indian religion or religion generally. Um, yeah, wow, that's a, that's a big question. <laughs> it is. So Douglas, if you're listening, uh, Rajanika <laughs> is the take on a, a goddess tradition, a Sri Vidya tradition, Vidya meaning wisdom, and Sri meaning of the goddess, abundance, um, Sri auspiciousness, so everything that that word means. I always tell people if they're like, Sri, what does that mean? Think of Sri Lanka, like beautiful, auspicious Lanka. That's an easy way to remember it. Um, but Rajanaka is a tradition um, coming from Tamil Nadu, so the southeastern part of India. And it's a tradition really developed by Douglas and his teacher, Gopala Ayar Sundramorti, and it's a take on the traditions, and you could say it's a tantric tradition. Um, Douglas usually refers it to, uh, refers to it as a Sri Vidya tradition, but the idea it's it, what differentiates it in a really overt way is that it doesn't present an attainment model for enlightenment. I guess that's the easiest. I feel like we're diving into the deep end here, and like two minutes of conversation, <laughs> but it's, I mean, many traditions, whether 
um, yogic traditions, whether they're tantric or whether whatever they are, they're they're chasing enlightenment. They're enlightenment models. Like, what can I do to become enlightened? And Rajandika's fundamental understanding is that there's nothing that you need that you don't have, which isn't to say that you don't need food, you don't need shelter, all these things, but whatever you need spiritually, you can explore within yourself. And that's why myth becomes important because we all have our own stories and mythic stories, um, they, they draw out our own stories and they offer us parallels and they offer us insights into our own hearts and into our own minds. And in this light, so the myth becomes this beautiful, creative, meaningful, um, way of looking at the world in the way of, and way of looking at ourselves, because of course we are in little microcosms of the world and the universe. And Rajanika says that there's, you know, we don't need to chase something that isn't us. We're not like, Oh, please enlightenment descend upon me. Or like, there's something I need to be or need to have that I don't inherently have. So I need to do all these magical things in order to become enlightened as if being human beings is somehow wrong. So Rajanika says like, you're fine who you are. You're perfectly imperfect. And we do the yoga to become more profoundly ourselves, to become our best selves, to look more deeply into our hearts and our minds and, and say, how can I be my best me? How can I be more a better person in the world? How can I be a better person in my own mind and heart? How can I be better for those around me who I love and care about? And so it's it's more of a process of sort of, of self-work, not to attain something that you don't have, but to, it's constant process. That's why it's yoga, it's yoking, it's process. It's not an end point. And so that really differentiates it from most traditions because the majority of tantric traditions, not all, but the majority are still looking for enlightenment. Mm-hmm. And the, the one other point I want to, it's very linked that I want to say about Rajanika, and I think it's easily understood to someone who might be listening to this for the first time, is that um, Rajanika also, let me see, how do I say this? No, you know, I'm going to leave it at that for now. Okay. <laughs> um, it's sort of like you're not chasing enlightenment and you're becoming more, like, uh, more profoundly your own best self. I'm going to leave it at that for now. There's a lot I could say, but I feel like we're so in the deep end, five minutes in, that I'm going to just leave it there for the time being. Well, two things. I think you did a beautiful job succinctly expressing the Rajanika viewpoint, even being new to it, but that sounded great to me. I think Douglas would be proud. Um, And the second thing, I, I have been known, I've been told by my friends to have a propensity to dive straight into the deep end. So Guilty as charged. I guess the listeners will be getting used to that. You know, I, I brought it up because it it is relevant for the rest where I want to go with this conversation in that it's it's about I'd like to encourage people who perhaps have this skepticism towards organized religion or flat out hostility towards it. Um, I was really in that camp for a long time, and I, I still have plenty of issues with organized religion. But um, you know, for a long time, I was really, I uh, was just studying Buddhism because that went pretty well with my um, sort of more atheist or agnostic viewpoint. But in the last year, through a, a couple of teachers, starting with Richard Freeman, is the one who really got me into appreciating the importance of myth, and then mantra, 
and then Sally Kempton and later Paul Muller Ortega and then Douglas um, to, to really appreciate that there's so much value in myth and in metaphor and that in this tradition, when we talk about gods or goddesses, that they actually can be metaphors for something else, right? Um, and I'm much newer to Rajanika and even to Sri Vidya, but I know certainly talking tantric Shaivism generally, and it doesn't matter if, to people in the audience if you don't know what that is, but in that system that posits there are two gods and or a god and goddess at the head of everything, you know, the, the god Shiva is really representing consciousness and Shakti, the goddess, is representing energy, and um, which are ultimately part of the one, right, which is indivisible. But that really kind of can map onto a modern, more rational, scientific viewpoint. And so even leaving aside the regional debate about whether there's an unbroken singularity or enlightenment towards which we're returning or not, I'm just wondering if you can kind of unpack the value of myths and deities as metaphors for people. Like, why should anyone care about studying a deity or these myths if you don't already have that particular perspective? What do they have to offer? Um, okay, yeah, then you know what? Because of that, I am going to touch upon the other thing I almost said but didn't. Do it. <laughs> Which <laughs> is that there are, the, there are two ideas of grace. And one is grace descending, and you have to do the yoga in order to receive grace from something outside of you. And the other idea, which is more Rajanika, is the idea that you do, you do the yoga to receive grace, but you're not begging for it from outside necessarily. And so it's a little bit more esoteric, perhaps this idea, but the idea is that you don't have to beg a force outside of yourself for grace. You have to align with grace, to find grace, to receive grace. And it's not something that exists outside of your embodied experience. So it's very similar to the first idea. And that's, I didn't want to get to, um, nitpicky with all that but I think I'm bringing it up now because I think that it's an interesting thing to think about in terms of theism versus atheism and I think you know in any pretty much any theistic tradition that I know of and there's so many out there that I don't know of but the ones that I'm familiar with I mean I was raised Catholic and um, you know grew up so you know surrounded by the Judeo-Christian tradition here in the U.S. You're, usually you're, you're asking for grace. You're asking for something outside of yourself to allow grace to descend upon you. And so your, your actions, everything that you're doing is in order to receive grace. <clears throat> so you have to please something outside of your, it's like pleasing a parent, you know, like pleasing God so that God will offer you grace. And, you know, that exists as well in other, outside of Judeo-Christian traditions. So, Within Hinduism, of course, you could be a theist and, and ask for grace from the deities, from the gods. Or you can see the gods as energies and also and or as metaphor. So I think there are people who see them just as metaphor, who may be, you know, on the far side of scholarship. And it's just 
you know, this stuff is all just metaphor and that's all it is. And then there's something in the middle that's energies and metaphor, which I would posit myself more there. Um, so I don't believe that like I can, you know, if I'm having an issue and I'm chanting to Durga for strength, you know, I'm not begging this being for strength for me personally, other people might do that. That's not my particular choice. But it's an, there's an energy of strength that exists in the world, in the universe, in myself that I'm calling to. And I'm like, okay, come on, come to the surface. I need you now. And But at the same time, it's, there's also the metaphor. There's the story and there are demons and there's this and there's that. And do I believe that demons really exist that, you know, like, you know, like in strange animal shapes and shape-shifting? No, I don't. But, but the metaphor is profound there. You know, that I, I often explain to people who don't study this at all or who are new to my yoga, who wander into my yoga class unbeknownst to themselves. And, you know, they're just like, I just want to, you know, do downward facing dog. I'll tell a story at the beginning and I'll say, just listen to it like this. Listen to it as if, you know, all these names for these deities are named aspects of yourself. And let the story happen within. And that's something that I, that one of my greatest teachers in high school told me to do. You know, when I was reading philosophy and we read Nietzsche and thus spoke Zarathustra and he said, it's going to take you longer, but read this book as if everything's happening inside of you. So you're going to have to keep stopping and being like, what is this? What's happening in me now? What's happening in me now? He said, but in the end, you're going to get so much more out of it if you apply it this immediately to yourself and your awareness, your consciousness and your life. And it was true. It took forever to read it that way, but it, but it was life changing. So, and years later, you know, Douglas was, was kind of saying the same thing. So when you can do that, when you can listen to a myth or a story of any kind or a narrative of any kind and say, what does this mean within me? How is this speaking to me and about me and for me? Then it's going to become profound. So you listen to, this is great. This is the kickoff, depending on your calendar, your take on the calendar, either today, actually, or tomorrow is the beginning of Navaratri, the great, the nine nights of the goddess. So that's why I'm talking about Durga. <laughs> so it's, this is a perfect time actually to be thinking, you know, why should I celebrate the goddess for nine nights in her various forms? Well, they're all forms of yourself. You know, how can you, so that's metaphor, but it's energetic as well. So that sort of answered plus, I think, your question. I love it. I'm not sure. <laughs> I love it. There's a lot to unpack there. I want to pick one thing and dig a little deeper. Okay, so if you are chanting to the goddess Dorga because she has a particular energy, right? It's a certain fierceness or courage, right? Um, why? Now, that makes sense. I'm trying to sort of frame that in terms of modern scientific terms because that's how that's the language right of our times right <laughs> for our audience so mm -hmm. I, you could talk about that in totally secular ways right in terms of the power of intention right that's a big thing so you sure. can you can set an intention to be more courageous right um but why, or I'll make another analogy, right? You can do a, a metta meditation, which is a Buddhist technique, right? Where you are imagining just yourself, right? Or a loved one, right? And sending them wonderful thoughts, kindness, loveness, compassion. What is the particular advantage 
to doing that on a mythological figure, on a metaphor, a deity, versus, say, just setting an intention in your own language or, you know, setting those thoughts to a real person? I think they're just different practices, to be honest. And I have to say, like, I love meta meditation. I've spent tons of time meditating with Sharon Salzberg. You know, I have the advantage here in New York of like everyone either living here or passing through. So um, I definitely educate myself about other traditions. And I find I find that practice incredibly beautiful and meaningful. And I love it. And it's very helpful to me. So sometimes it just depends on my mood or what I need at the time. But I think that in terms of narrative, narrative, <clears throat> you know, we're human beings. We live stories. We create stories. We tell stories. We, you know, we, we go to the movies. We watch TV. We read books. And, and narratives help us. It's the easiest way of stepping into a way of thinking or it's the easiest way of of understanding our world. I mean, metaphor sort of, how do we understand what's going on with ourselves? Well, we look at someone else who's gone through it. We hear a story or we, we get an archetype, something that shows us what it means to be fearless or courageous or brave or steadfast, all these things that Durga, for example, is. And, you know, she gets the job done. She steps forward. She, you know, so here we have not just concepts, but concepts applied to a story. And so we see the story and, and we can say, okay, I get the story and this is happening and we get drawn in to the story and it helps us to understand something about our own story because we usually have a story that's parallel to something about the story that we're reading or listening to. And I know even going back to the MoMA thing for just a moment, one of the things that we did in the education department there was really study how people learn. We studied we really, really investigated that. We had worked with a think tank, um, Howard Gardner, the guy who wrote Multiple Intelligences. We worked at this think tank um, and at Harvard and stuff. And part of what we did with them was be like, how do people learn? How do people latch onto information? And it was fascinating. And you realize that usually if we brought people through the galleries, we would first start with the a, with a most narrative work and move gradually toward abstraction. We didn't have to do that, but three quarters of the time, that was the most effective way for people to learn because nothing gets people involved more quickly than a story. Like you're sucked in, you're, you know, so we would go to a really narrative painting as opposed to like a Jackson Pollock, you know, and people would be like, right. wow, you know, and it's not universal. It's not like 100% of the people, but I would say 75% could relate to that first so that by the time we move toward a more abstract work, they could understand it. And I think we're talking about an analogous process in terms of searching for meaning or searching to understand our universe and ourselves. If we start with a narrative, it's, it's an invitation. It's like, oh, step into the story as opposed to going straight for the concept. And again, there are going to be people who want to go straight for the concept and that's their sensibility. And there are going to be others that lean more toward narrative. But almost everyone can relate to some sort of narrative. We are narrative creators. I mean, even if you look at reality TV, you know, which isn't really real, of course, but it's people are fascinated with the narratives of other people's lives, even when it's trashy, even when it's, you know, ridiculous, even when it's kind of fake. People want people move toward narrative. 
Especially when it's trashy. It's beautiful. Pardon me? Yeah, I know. Especially when it's trashy. Yeah, well, you're touching on something, though, that's, I'll admit I had a bit of a hidden agenda when I asked the question, and I mean you're hitting the nail on the <laughs> head, which is that I think what I've come to find, and you've obviously been doing these practices a lot longer, so you know this, but I found that it has really allowed me to tap into my imagination, using the power of imagination to even access a different part of your your consciousness, to have a different experience because I'm someone who is very rational and scientifically oriented. And so it's very easy to just think about things that way. And there's actually, there's a a quote from Joseph Campbell that I'd like to read on this point because I feel this really sums up how a lot of the world or society is about religion and hopefully people like Douglas and you and myself and people who share these viewpoints, whatever your background is, are trying to find somewhere in between. So Joseph Campbell, the famous mythologist says, half the people in the world think that the metaphors of their religious traditions, for example, are facts. And the other half contends that they are not facts at all. As a result, we have people who consider themselves believers because they accept metaphors as facts. And we have others who classify themselves as atheists because they think religious metaphors are lies. And I feel before I was certainly in that latter group because I had, I was so dismayed by the problems that come with the former way of viewing the world. And I still feel that way, but it's, we make a mistake when we confuse um, myths as true or false, right? Myths are, I think Joe, uh, Douglas has said, facts are, what do you say? Myths are interpreted. Oh, yeah, myths are lies served, um, myths are lies told in the service of the greater truth. I don't know whether that's his quote oh, or whether he's oh, quoting And he's also said, sure, he facts that. are verified, myths are interpreted. Oh, okay. Right. And so just, I found that it really, as someone who always views things through that one side of my brain, just being able to like spark that imagination is something that I've gotten a lot out of it. And I'm wondering, is that something that sounds like maybe as a literature person, you were maybe always that way, but do you notice that in your students that if they're tilted more towards one side of the brain than the other, do you feel that it's okay? Cause that what speaks to you or do you feel that something's missing if you can't, integrate both of those approaches? I don't know if you can integrate both approaches. They're fundamentally different ways of viewing life, you know, viewing the universe. I think that that divide will always exist. But, I mean, there it is. I mean, you just have to decide what's meaningful for yourself, you know. I, I don't know. I mean, one of the sweet things... I'm going to veer off so you can pull me back if you want me to. Veer. One of the things I think is particularly beautiful and sweet about going into Hindu temples in South India is that no one asks you at the door what's your belief system. I mean, there are certainly temples that are government-controlled where they won't let in Westerners. Um, and Or sometimes if you're really persistent or if you get permission, you can go in just so it so the temples are respected places and it's not people gawking and tourism and all this stuff, which I, I get it. I understand that. 
Um, but a lot of the temples, you know, you wander right in. They're not going to say at the door, what is your belief system? So you can wander in and out of, of puja, you know, of, of the practices and worship that, that are happening and be a part of it. And they're not asking you what your particular take is on it to make sure that you get to be there. Because with all the people who go, of course, there's going to be a wide range of different approaches. And it's not just like you're a theist or you're not a theist. I mean, there's such a range. I mean, I think it's a, a huge grayscale in there. And there's so many different ways of being between theism and atheism. I think that there there's a lot of... I, I, there are probably a ton of people out there who are disagreeing with me about that right now. Right. But I think that there are different ways of being a theist or an atheist. And so it's not just, it's not so black and white. I think that, you know, it's like it's, you know, when we talk about energy and we talk about this and we talk about that, there's energy in the universe and the physicists love Nataraja, you know, which is the great temple, of course, that is at the heart of um, my tradition and my pretty much my favorite place on earth, <laughs> but it's, you know, the physicists love it because it's, you know, there's all this stuff in the tradition really, and especially in the tantric tradition related to vibration and botch and all this stuff. So there's this incredibly scientific stuff connected to a tradition that's often interpreted in a theistic way. So it's, it can get sort of fuzzy in there as far as I'm concerned, um, whether or not people agree with me on that is a different matter. So let's let's dive into that point a little deeper because I actually made a very similar point in sort of starting this project, which is that I've come to appreciate a lot of these Indian, you know, adepts, especially these tantric adepts, as a sort of of they were scientists, you know, in their own way. But this is something that certainly to many people who are skeptical of organized religion or atheists would say, what are you talking about? It's the height of contradiction. How could a theistic religious person be scientist? You know, so can you kind of unpack why you say that about a lot of these tantric adepts? Well, I mean, in terms of the adepts, I don't really know. I mean, there are, there are two primary strains of Tantra in terms of like sort of Tantra the left, which is all the strange alchemical stuff that gives Tantra its weird reputation and the sexual stuff and this and that. And then there's Tantra of the right, which is where I fall, which is really more, you know, intellectual in the text. And of course it's, there's also, there's spirituality in both, but I just don't know about the other side of it. And it doesn't really interest me because the other side of it is very alchemical. It's like it's formula toward enlightenment and a formula toward this. And I'm, I'm not interested in that. Right. What about the part about the I, vibratory quality, Vach, maybe the energy? Could yeah. you unpack that a little well, bit? Well, that goes all the way back to, you know, the Upanishads and the Vedas and stuff. I mean, that's, you know, Vach is an ancient goddess. And, you know, so if goddesses are interpreted as energy, which they are in many systems, um, Vash goes all the way back to the Vedas. And so that's, you know, whether that's 15 to 1800 BCE, before the Common Era, I mean, she goes all the way back and they talk, speak of her, she's spoken of as a goddess, but she's also, what does that mean as a goddess? Does she have a form? Well, no, she, it means like there's an energy of Vash. And it's vibration, and it's this, and it's that, and and it gets it mixed. It's all mixed in the early 
years with um, Saraswati, and you know, which is a river in effect. Saraswati is a river, so there, there's all this confounding of of vach, which is the vibratory power of everything that exists, or the, defined as the vibratory power of sound, with flow. Of course, that makes sense. And so then you have the river. So you have Ganga, and you have the the you know all these rivers in India, and they're all sort of mixed together. And then Vach is sort of, in a way, placed to the side while all these other great narratives and these great epics, some of which are historical, based in historical fact, and some, you know, and then some are embroidered upon whatever, the Mahabharata, in which you find the Bhagavad Gita and the Ramayana. And then you keep moving up and moving into the common era. And then with the rise of Tantra, which is sort of, it's, you know, with the rise of Tantra much later, several centuries later, you're going to get Vach taking on an increased level of importance. All of a sudden that comes back in full force and, the, you know, and you have stanzas on vibration and, and all these writings like Abhinava Gupta, the great scholar of Kashmir Shaivism, talking about the importance of vibration and the vibratory power and like sound and all these things that now in the 20th century and 21st century physicists were talking, 20th century physicists were talking about the vibratory power of sound and everything being vibration. And I really don't know enough about the science to be even speaking about it more than that, but it's definitely related to what was to all these theories about Bosch that were being espoused or recorded, you know, between like, 9th century to 11th, 12th century um, common era. So, you know, it's an, it's just pretty interesting. I mean, it's it's definitely runs together, and you'd have to be much more knowledgeable in that era to say more about it than that. I'm not as, as knowledgeable as I'd like to be in that era, and it's something that I'm still studying and reading, and Mark Diskowski, the scholar, has written about it extensively, and of course, all the great scholars of Kashmir Shaivism, of Tantra, of, you know, they've all written about it a little bit to some extent. Right. That Vach would be also very much referring to, right, the power of, of language, right? That's why the Vedas Definitely. were spoken and chanted. And so maybe you can say something about, and I actually got into this with my, my first podcast a little bit. I'd love to build on it. Sort of like, I... I've come to appreciate that chanting Sanskrit, once again, something that someone who has a, you know, seemingly issues with organized religion would say, well, why would I want to do that? That's such an overt display of religiosity. What are the, what is the benefit of mantra practice, right? What is the power of language? What does that bring to your meditation practice as someone who's not necessarily theistic, which I know you're not. Um, I think it's interesting to think about how much of that is language and how much of that is sound, how much is tone, how much is, you know, so, I mean, mantra practice is a definitely, it's my, it's a daily part of my life. And, and it depends on sometimes I'll stick with one mantra for a while, for a month or two or three. And sometimes I'll, you know, I've gone with one chant for a year and that not to say that I won't do other ones, but it's just what I do when I get up in the morning or before I go to sleep at night and I find myself chanting it during the day. And then after a while, I mean, it's, it's vibration. And if you're, 
there's there's power in mantra. There's power in sound. There's power in vibration. We know this. Like think of how even we we hum or we make a sound like oh, you know, and that vibration that we make with our voice, with our breath, with our lungs and our body shifts something. It releases something in us. And think of how we feel with music and even music without words and what different kinds of music and tones do to us, whether they agitate us or whether they relax us. And then if we bring words into the picture and some mantras are made of words and some mantras are not made of words, um, they're not made of words, they're made of sounds or of bijas. And bijas are seed syllables or seed sounds like om is a great bija and it does mean things, but it's also just a sound that encapsulates all other sounds. But they're also, you know, like, Dorga, since I started, I was speaking about her. I'll continue. Her bija is doom, D, usually spelled D-U-M. Sometimes you'll see it D-U-N. Sometimes, you know, it looks like, it sounds like D-O-O-M. So that doesn't mean anything, but it, ha, but it contains power. This is, off, this is often the hardest thing to, for people to wrap their heads around. <laughs> so they're like, well, doom represents Dharma. Durga. Well, no, it doesn't really represent Durga. It is Durga. It's when you when you create that sound with your mouth, with your voice, with your breath, with your body. That's the power of Durga. So that actually leads into. I mean, we think metaphorically, so we want to say this equals that. This means this. This is the same as that through analogy, through metaphor, through simile. But in this case, doom. That's Durga. I just chanted Durga. So if you think of it like that, it becomes quite interesting. You're chanting power. You're you're chanting Durga. You are creating Durga when you chant that, um, or accessing Durga, however you want to think about it. Whereas if I say, you know, Om Namah Shivaya, like bow down to the greatness of Shiva, and you can say everything Shiva represents or whatever, the Namah, the, the, the name, all those things, those are words rather than bijas. So... That's a different kind of mantra. And you can have, obviously, bijas are made, you can have mantras, rather, that are made up of a combination of bija and word, and those are called samelana, mixed, blended um, mantras, because they're mixed between, like, seed syllables and words. So whether you chant words or whether you chant sound, just pure sound, they all do something to you. They do something to you. You know, and I would say to people who are, skeptical of that or curious about it to just try it what happens if you pick a mantra that makes sense to you and chant it every day and now the the term mantra is so much in the common i mean parlance that people are like my mantra is like you know there's skits on you know that make fun of it used to be on saturday Night live like i'm good you know people like me you know i'm meaningful whatever <laughs> people can say like but a mon it can be very meaningful to say like i am empowered i am empowered i am empowered people say you create mantras out of English words or out of, you know, whatever language you speak words. So mantra means a lot of things. It means mantra is a device. It's a tool for your mind and your heart. So try it. You know, mantra does something to you. And even if you, it just does something to you, just the way sound does something to you. And the repetition of words does something to you. And you create a pattern inside your consciousness with 
this set of words with a mantra by doing it again and again and again it creates like a like a furrow in the ground and then your mind keeps going back to that furrow because it travels along it with familiarity and for this reason mantra can accumulate meaning almost by going back to it again and again and then sometimes you do a mantra for a while and then one day you're just like i'm not feeling it anymore and it's like you've just your awareness has moved somewhere else or needs something else but you know whether you believe it or not the mantra in any way creates a pattern in your body and your awareness and your consciousness through repetition through vibration through whatever whatever other processes we go through when we use the power of sound and it does something to you whether you like it or not whether you know it or not whether you're aware of it or not so maybe it, that answered your question it totally does yeah and i think there's a whole spectrum from gross to subtle i mean on a very yeah. basic level you know it gives your mind something to concentrate on right like Definitely. when you're just think when you're just focusing on your breath to yourself the mind wanders a lot easier than if I have to utter these words, the mind naturally has to focus on them because it's something you're doing. doesn't mean your mind couldn't race while you're doing that. Certainly could and probably will at some point, but it's, it's less likely to, right? So that's kind of the basic level. And then through all those more esoteric levels, which I I totally agree with you, you know, you've got to try it in, in through repetition. Um, you will only discover what that means. But one, I just did a little course on mantra and one thing that the teacher shared, it was with Sally Kempton and she was saying that a line from the Shiva Sutra, I'm probably going to misquote it, but it's something along the lines of the true secret of the mantra is the Prakasha, which is the great light Mm. of consciousness within it. And I thought there was something beautiful about that because when you chant, a mantra enough times it it begins to vibrate right which is quite literal right it's sound what is energy it's sound and light are two of the most common forms of energy and through over time that mantra just breaks apart right into vibrating scintillating particles of light and sound and you don't do it for that kind of fantastic experience, though it can be quite blissful, but um, I think there's something that's why it's practice, right? It is so elemental to to life, and, and it's inseparable, right? Consciousness is inseparable from the energy that animates it, right? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's really beautiful. Thank you. Um, loved what you shared. Loved what you shared. And yeah, it's a beautiful teaching. Um, I wanted to circle back to the idea because we went into mantra deep in the, the theistic viewpoints about um, what you love so much. And we can transition this with the power of language, talking about metaphor, right? But what you love so much about myth and what do these stories really have to offer? Because I know you teach courses, right? You're teaching a course now on Ganesh, right? And on the goddess before. So what do you find so enchanting, right, about these myths? 
It's so funny. Sometimes I ask myself that question. <laughs> I'm like, why am I so, how did I ever end up here? I never had any intention of, of doing this. It was never my life plan. My life was very planned out in terms of art and the art world and all that stuff. Um, and I always loved to write as well. But I, you know, I was writing about art when I was at MoMA. So, I, yeah, I, I feel like I stumbled into it. When I look back, I... Loved my sister and I both loved, loved, loved um, Greek and Roman myth growing up. Like, the two of us were obsessed. We were reading all the little kid books that you can read on Greek and Roman mythology, and but I never, you know, it was just great stories to me. Like I love a good story, and we were fairly TV deprived as kids, which was a wonderful thing. Thanks, mom and dad, <laughs> and we got to watch it, but not very much. We really the focus was on reading and playing outdoors. I did not grow up in New York City, so. So reading was huge because that was my access to story and to and to narrative and to and I and I loved it and I just my sister and I I can remember my parents like wanting us to read but also getting really frustrated because they'd be like it's time to eat dinner and we'd be both so buried in our books that we wouldn't even hear what was going on so we were both bookworms and um, and if you know and if you don't have access to if or if you don't you know if you're not always in front of a TV, you're hungry for stories and you find them, or, you know, many people are, I was, my sister was. And so you find those things in every book you can get your hands on. And so I don't, you know, it's so funny. I mean, yoga was meaningful to me and I'm pretty intellectually curious, curious, sometimes I can speak, sometimes I can't. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just, I felt the stories seemed, I think it gets to that idea of a greater truth. There's, there's something that a story can evoke within you that just plain fact or theory cannot. And they all have their place. But I think when we hear a story, something you know, we're carried, we can lose ourselves a little bit in that story in a good way, in a positive way, but we can also be swept into the narrative in a way that we do learn something about ourselves. And, and sometimes it's hard to just look in the, you know, psychic mirror at yourself and figure out things about yourself, but you can look at it through the lens of myth and see more profound truths or about the way the world works. And you look at and I mean, that's, you bring up Joseph Campbell. I mean, that's what, he was like, look at this, culture to culture to culture. We're all making meaning through myth. This is really incredible. This is something really essential in being, about being human, about our desire, our need to tell stories, our need to find meaning through story, our need to find ourselves through narrative. And it's, it's so powerful it's so funny you know last night this is it's a total divergence but it's I went to hear um Patty Smith has been in town this week and she's a great hero of mine and so I had the great privilege of hearing her live twice in the past week and so and I bumped into a friend I hadn't seen from my yoga teacher training it really in 15 years who happened to be in town and happened to be friends with Patty Smith <laughs> and wow. so afterwards we we said hello, and I was and I was laughing. I was like, I was hugged by Patty Smith. You know, wow, my life is complete. You know, but she is someone who's a great bard and a great storyteller, and people look up to her because she sings songs 
you know, sometimes about her own experience, and she writes about her own experience quite a bit. But people find in her experience, in the narrative of her experience, some great truth about their own experience. And so whether, you know, so I'm thinking, this is so funny, last night I was like, like, wow, Patti Smith listening to her read from her new book. Um, and then today I'm talking about Hindu myth, and it's, it's so funny, but somehow, like, whatever the narrative process is in our lives, and we all come from many. And, you know, even if you go into South India, there are the myths of your family, there are the myths, you know, it doesn't matter where you're from, South India or New York or, you know, wherever you're living in your life, there are going to be your local stories, the stories from your neighborhood, from your town, from your city, and there are going to be the greater narratives that everyone has from their perhaps spiritual tradition, and then the stories of their family, and then the stories of your own heroes who you pick out. And so we, we live surrounded by stories, surrounded by, by narrative, cultural narratives, surrounded by, which are really myths. I mean, myths are cultural narratives. So it, I think that that's, and I had some, someone questioned my use of the word myth on Facebook or something recently. And I wasn't speaking of myth as, as a lie. I was speaking, of, you know, people use like mythbusters, like as if it, a myth means a lie, and it's kind of too bad. That's not what I ever mean when I talk about myth. I'm, I'm talking about a cultural narrative, and that can be anything range from a narrative that is based in history or a narrative that is invented. So it can be, it's all those things, the word myth to me, the term myth. And um, so, as I said, I've diverged from your question. No, it's okay. I think it's important to define what I mean by that, and I wish I had done that up front. And, um, I mean, think of all the levels of myths that we that create our lives and the, and the myths that our lives are based upon. It's really quite beautiful, you know? Like, just cultural narrative upon personal narrative and personal experience upon cultural experience. And then the ones where we, where we end up, I mean... What does Durga have to do with my life? What does Ganesha, what does Shiva have to do with my life? Why do I keep going to the great temple of Chidambaram, you know, which is Nataraja's home? Um, you know, what does that have to do with me? You know, I grew up in New England. You know, so on the surface, nothing. But underneath, there's something for me that resonates in these beautiful narratives, cultural narratives from the Hindu tradition that nothing else has resonated in the same way for me. And so I do question it all the time because I'm someone who questions. I'm like, how did I end up here? I'm, I'm very um, mindful that I'm a visitor in a tradition that is not mine. And I try to be very sensitive about that. And, and I don't know why, you know, I have sometimes my Indian friends are like, how did you end up in this? You know, or, or they're like, ah, oh, you tell these stories in your yoga classes and workshops that my grandmother used to tell. And, and I'm like, I hope that's okay. You know, I want to be respectful because um, I didn't grow up with it. And hopefully I am, I do my best, you know, as we all do. Um, but it, they just resonate for me so powerfully and energetically. Like, why do I keep going back to Nataraja's temple? Which, you know, because there's something about that place that touches me in a way that nothing else on this earth touches me. And it, it speaks to my heart in a way that I actually can't put into words. I can try and I've written on it extensively because I'm always trying to put things into words because I love words, but I'll never truly be able to explain 
how that place vibrates inside my heart and what I, it feels like to me when, when I walk through its, its corridors and when I'm in that place. Um, and I think that's similar to what a bija mantra does. It vibrates in a way that you, you can't put into words. It's just its own thing. And we can, we can adorn it with words. We can cloak it with words. We can decorate these experiences we have with words because that's our way of understanding the world and communicating with each other for the most part, there are other ways to, you know, movement and dance and all these other things. But at the end of the day, like what speaks to you speaks to you. And, um, when you find other people with whom that resonates as well, you kind of want to hang out with them, <laughs> you know, because they're the ones who get what you're talking about. And then to an extent, it's also just a completely personal experience and that exists in the realm of, wordlessness. Yeah, totally. I I would, everything you said really resonated for me. And um, I'd love to sort of build on your idea, just sharing a quote. And perhaps if you want to react to it, you can react to it. And that can perhaps start to bring us to a close. But it just, um, it really seems applicable here. So it's another Joseph Campbell quote. He said, life has no meaning. Each of us has meaning and we bring it to life. It is a waste to be asking the question when you are the answer. Mm, It's gorgeous. Yeah, it is. Like we are, right, we're meaning, I think we we said this at the beginning of the conversation, I think you did, we're meaning-making machines, right? This is what the mind does. And Yes. Yeah, I don't know if you want to react to that or... We can just let it yes, drop I like oh. I said that at the beginning. I probably would have said the same thing. <laughs> we are, I mean, we, we're creating meaning in every single breath, in every single moment, whether it's our analytical minds or our hearts or our gut instinct or, you know, whether that's all mind, that's another question, you know. But we never, we're always making meaning. We're always creating meaning. So narratives are narratives, meaning myths, cultural narratives, personal narratives, in a way, especially cultural narratives are are symphonic moments of meaning making, I think. It's like when we can speak to the collective, we could, this is something, this is something we all share and we're going to create a story. So we each can enter into that story in our own way and we each can recognize ourselves in that story in our own way. We're each making our own individual meaning. So the meaning as Joseph Campbell says in that quote, it's not something that exists outside of ourselves. I mean, everyone has their own sense of meaning. So in that sense, it does exist outside of ourselves. But as I make meaning and as you make meaning, as we're even having this conversation, you know, something happens also in the middle, which is a connection. And I'm interpreting what you're saying. I'm making meaning out of what you're saying. You're making meaning out of what I'm saying. And whoever ends up listening to this is going to make their own meaning as well. So it's, just meaning after meaning after meaning. It's just, it's just, we're churning meaning as we speak and as we listen. And, and that's beautiful. That's sweet. And when we can do that together as a culture, it often results in myth in the grand narrative traditions that exist in every culture. Yeah. Beautiful. I think that's an excellent place to sort of wrap up where we sort of began the power of language and the goddess, right? Um, so before we close though, I'd love for you to, uh, 
have an opportunity just to share with our listeners, who I'm sure many of whom loved the very insightful things you had to share, I certainly did, um, any upcoming workshops, retreats that you might have where they can find you on social media, all that good jazz. Oh, thank you for asking me that. Um, actually, in a couple of weeks, my course, 30 Things About Ganesh, <laughs> 30 Things About Ganesha, begins. It's the second time I've offered it. And it's a really comprehensive exploration of who Ganesh is and what he is. And, and so it's taking, it's 30 different aspects of Ganesha, meaning 30 different things about him, just like the title says. And it's a, every, it's a series of newsletters, one each one focused on either a different Ganesh story or a Ganesh attribute, like what are his bowl of sweets about? What's he holding in his hands? And so I go through things one by one. So it's like a mini intensive into Ganesha. And a lot of people took it last fall. This is only the second time I'm offering it. So all the information's on my website. And additionally, I have a retreat coming up with one of my closest friends, Todd Tesson, and he is really like, we call each other um, separated at birth because <laughs> we're so... Um, similar sort of in our interests and emotionally and he's really one of my dearest friends one of my closest friends so we're actually co-hosting a retreat in Goa in January January 15th to 22nd and we can't wait because the two of us you know have this so many similar practices and we chant and it's going to be a deep dive into asana but also the additional practices of mantra and mudra and myth and it's going to be really really gorgeous and finally, my, my book. My book, it's almost the one-year anniversary of my book, Yoga 365, coming out. It was released October 4th of 2016, and it's still doing really well. It's in its fourth printing and easy to find on Amazon and everywhere else. So um, you can even flip through it on Amazon. So it's, yeah, and that's pretty much the yoga off the mat, although there's some asanas included as well and mantras and all kinds of stuff. And what so was your you website, Susanna? Oh, it's SusannaHarwoodRubin.com. So it's just my name with no spaces.com. Okay. My full name. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for making the time. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. and You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. I, yeah. It's a great compliment, and, and it was fun. It was a lot of fun. We'll have to do it again. Yes, I would love that. Okay. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Hacking Consciousness podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher or the Google Music Store. And please follow us on social media. Um, our Facebook page is simply Hacking Consciousness is the name of the page. And then on Twitter and Instagram, the handle is H-A-C-K-I-N-C-O-N-S-C-I-O-U-S. So it's Hacking Conscious without the G. And you can also follow us on WordPress at hackingconsciousness.org. Thank you so much for your interest and talk to you next time.